0: Hello and welcome to Silent Designers, a podcast about the under-the-radar design activity which goes on in so many organisations, even though it's not necessarily seen as design or even done by designers. Each month, we will have an expert to share their knowledge and the impact that designers had in their particular domain. I'm Steve Welsh from Innovate UK. And I'd like to introduce my co host, Catherine Wildman, founder of B2B copywriting agency Hayden Gray. Catherine.
1: Hi, Steve. Thank you for the introduction. In today's episode of Silent Designers, we're going to be exploring the theme of healthy living and tech. And we're going to be talking to Ahmed Wobi. He is the co founder of Tonus Tech, an award winning writer, director, and national basketball champion. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Catherine, and nice to meet you.
0: Yes, Amit, thanks for joining us. Let's start easy. Can you tell us about yourself and the area of innovation you work in?
2: Yeah, so I uh, work in the area of health technology, and I used to be a a doctor. Initially, I studied neurosciences, and afterwards, I transitioned towards uh, health tech. And specifically, with Tonus Tech, we look at mobility and longevity. So the area that we're focusing on is trying to keep people moving better for longer, using sensors and artificial intelligence.
1: Extraordinary. Um, Can you tell us how do you use design in this area and why is it important to your innovation?
2: Yeah, so design plays quite a large part in both the uh, solution of the products that we're designing because it has a combination of hardware and software. The hardware itself is uh, a mix of multiple sensors that are used on the lower limbs and we needed to work out how to create these sensors from scratch, but also how easy it would be for people to use them. That process was not straightforward, but I think often a lot of these design processes will take you on interesting journeys, and specifically in working out how to develop the product with the hardware and the software combination, we had to think a lot about what would be easy, what would be attractive, um, what would be comfortable, Accessible And all of these sort of concepts came up in the process.
0: So the, the mobility you're working on, is, is that for athletic performance or as a therapy for people with challenges?
2: So we, we approached it from a general health and wellness perspective. The core technology itself can be used for all. So it can be used for performance athletes, but it also can be used for everyday people who are just interested in keeping themselves fit and healthy. And it can also be used in a medical context. So, if anyone has any uh, ability altering conditions, whether it's like an arthritis or even uh, more um, disabling, such as a, a paralysis, any type of mobility issue, the software and the hardware can be used for. So, we try to reach out to everyone who wants to move in a better way for themselves.
1: Extraordinary. Can I ask about the application of AI with the sensors? How. It's in the news all the time, isn't it, AI, but how? what, what was the thinking behind that and how does it work?
2: So for the way that we use AI, um, there's an awful lot of data that is produced when you have a sensor involved. We use multiple sensors, so each of the sensors, usually it's two on each leg, one on the lower back, produces information about the orientation and the speed and position of a limb and, and other things around like acceleration. When you have... Uh, the sampling of of each of those sensors that occurs hundreds of times a second, very very quickly, you get millions of data points for each person when they're moving. The AI is very good at classifying specific movements. So what it does is, for example, you can put the sensors on, whether they're in the leggings or directly on the skin, and if you do multiple exercises like a squat or a lunge or a walk or a run. When you have all those data points gathered together, the AI will be able to t- detect the difference between a run or a squat or a lunge, uh, and then it can work out what is the optimum version of that movement for each individual person, because we all have different anatomy and we all move in different ways. So that's what the AI is very powerful at doing. It's it's good at looking at patterns in large volume data sets.
0: Interesting, are you able or interested i don't know if, it, if it's um part of your thinking but does that also translate across uh, different patients or clients so you your system is also gradually learning more across different varieties of people
2: exactly so at the moment our main focus is on older adults uh because that's sort of where we see our potential use case however it can be used for anyone and the current training data has a lot of old adults who have used the the sensors. So the the library or the data set is mainly focused in that way. And if you were to look at uh, younger people, it would have a different sort of uh, algorithmic library base case. So our, our focus is sort of skewed our library in a specific direction. And the testing that we've done has been in certain uh, medical conditions. So we haven't looked at everything. And that's, I guess, good when you're first starting out, but eventually we would like to expand that.
1: Is there a reason why you're focusing on the older population? Um, I know we're living longer, aren't we? Exactly. Is is that the reason behind it?
2: Absolutely. When we were formed as a company, we came out of Zinc VC, which is a business builder that is mission-based. And our particular um, mission was around the concept of longevity and, and healthy aging. And we thought that it was a great opportunity and it hadn't been explored as much, particularly within the mobility market. And mobility through conventional interventions has been partially affected, but we were looking to develop a, a customized solution that would be easy and accessible, but would also reduce significant gains. So that's why we were looking at older adults. And we think that as long as people are living longer, unfortunately, the quality of that life is not always great. So how can we improve that? And one of the the evidence-based interventions is looking at mobility and helping people move.
0: And how did you arrive at this? Uh, Was the the need for this something you learned perhaps earlier in your your medical
2: or academic time? Absolutely. Uh, When I initially did my uh, studies at uh, university, I focused on patients that had tremors. These were patients that had multiple sclerosis, and one of the therapies that we used was deep brain stimulation, which is where you sort of introduce an electrode into different parts of the brain to sort of counteract the the body's natural electrical signal. And the aim is to sort of find this balance where you can help people move, whether it is in multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease or other uh, neurological conditions that affect movement. Outside of that, I'd also seen a lot of patients um, who were struggling with movement uh, in the hospital scenario, and just anecdotally in everyday life through friends and family. So I knew that it was something that was very common. I, myself, had had injuries to my knees, both uh, when I was after playing sport and had needed surgery. So I knew that it was something that affected a lot of people, and I'd personally seen how limited the interventions were. So it was something that I think I had a little bit of personal and academic experience with. And with my co founders, we thought it was an area that had a rich potential.
1: I think we have to come back to this, um, the fact that you're a national basketball champion and how extraordinary. You've just touched on your own experiences. Are there other aspects of playing sports at such a professional level that you can bring in I suppose the rigour, the training, the discipline that's involved?
2: Absolutely. Uh, I think I learned a lot from being in a, I guess, a formal or higher level, uh, sporting environment, um, basic things around teamwork, uh, communication, uh, leadership. You have to be able to make very quick decisions, knowing how other members of your team will react. And I think that translates to life in general, but also to academia and entrepreneurism as well as design because there is a sort of iteration idea of going back to concepts and trial and error and then testing and testing and working on what works well and leaving what doesn't work. Yeah, so I think all of those aspects definitely helped me in my further careers.
0: Your background as doctor-turned-startup-creator is obviously clearly a very interesting route. How do you think academics generally could make better use
2: of design? That's a great question. Uh, I think there is embedded design culture within some streams of academia. However, I think often there are overly rigid uh, boxes which have come from a a good place because of a lot of the work that is done is is driven by an evidence based focus. So that can lead to almost train tracks where where it comes to sort of creative thought. Uh, However, I think there is room for early discovery that I think that a lot of academics don't necessarily have access to because in a self-limiting way, it is sort of driven by a higher outcome or a higher goal that is often led by the institution. So, I think if we were able to introduce the more kind of creative aspect of design thinking, particularly early on in studies, whether it's pilot these or formative research areas, I think that would greatly benefit uh, a lot of academia. I think we're seeing some of that now, particularly around the use of artificial intelligence, because it lowers the threshold for early exploration. And uh, I think large sort of data sets can be. Experimented with, very early on, prior to further experimentation.
0: Everything you're saying there about people's, if you like, established thinking patterns and needing to to break out of that, I sort of, I, I guess it's it feels, maybe it's a cliche to say it, but almost more important than ever now because AI is enabling a lot, but also, I guess. I'm thinking that we need to work harder, at, therefore, at making sure the humans are doing the bit that the humans are good at. And often it's that early creative leap, uh, which the machine can't quite do for us yet. Kind of hoping it'll be a while. But that ability to think in new ways, bringing together unlikely components or just thinking in new ways or bringing ideas in from other sectors. So it really feels that um, the opportunity is there, and I, I, I like your point about that AI maybe simplifying that, that
2: early process. Absolutely, I I totally agree with the lowering of the the threshold. I think a lot of sort of simulation has become apparent now, which was very difficult maybe ten years ago. So people before they even embark on real studies are able to simulate a lot of things using artificial intelligence and that I think that's a great way of sort of building these sort of design and and creator um opportunities early on in academic academia. And on that list of things to think about, and this
0: this is perhaps a bit of a vague question for which I apologize, but we've seen in some cases that there is a danger in how AI models are trained, in that they, they start to build in let's say the small P prejudices of the people providing the data, and and can almost embed some of the more negative human approaches. Have you any thoughts on that, or how people can more routinely strive to stop that happening?
2: That's a great question. I don't think there's an easy answer. I think the ideal solution would be to eliminate any sort of bias or prejudice outside of artificial intelligence first. Often we see that the Data models are trained have that that are trained have similar biases to the people that train them, uh, even if it is an unconscious bias. So, if we can sort of at a core, broader philosophical level address those first, that w- I think would would sort of slow down in the sort of work stream towards the AI models themselves being uh, more robust. I think also regularly checking. The actual sort of data sets themselves and what's being produced with an inclusive and diverse set of uh, both end users and scientists or academics. So, I think people who come from a mixed background, whether it's from uh, age, race, uh, ability, et cetera, would be able to see and observe such biases at an earlier stage rather than developing something, waiting till it's done, and then looking at the final product and and kind of having to walk backwards. So I think embedding more people into the design process from a diverse range of backgrounds earlier on, but also if as a society we're able to kind of implement those ideas, which I understand is not an easy thing to do, but I, I definitely think that that's how eventually we will be able to overcome this issue.
1: Looking to the future, Ahmed, if I was to talk to you again in two, three years' time, where do you think this technology is going to have taken us?
2: I hope that it has reached the point of sort of global acceptance from a thought perspective, where people are, are able to be comfortable with the idea that the clothes that they wear are able to follow how they move and also give feedback uh, to themselves about how they're moving, to help people both from a health and fitness perspective, to understand in the same way many people now have wearables in their watches that give them feedback and they understand about their heart rate a bit more, and they understand more about their steps. I'm hoping that's the sort of paradigm shift that we can see with clothing. And then we can take that a bit further, maybe in a more than two or three years, maybe five to 10 years where. We'll start to understand that uh, movement is a form of a, a biomarker, and it can be very indicative of early stage disease and monitoring of disease that we can prevent through simple intervention. So, I think that's sort of my 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 hope, and I think it it will happen. I I'm just not sure how quickly we will be able to adopt that that sort of uh, sea change.
1: We're coming towards the end of our time today, Ahmed. I'd like to thank you very much for being here with us. And I know that Steve has one more question to ask.
0: Well, you, you might have thought of asked the hardest questions already, but I think this might be the, the trickiest one. If you were to narrow everything down at, to one, one thing to think of, if you had one piece of advice to someone wanting to incorporate design thinking in what they do, what would
2: that be? I think the key is to focus on your end user whoever that may be you really need to understand them and you need to get from them all the information because they have all the answers sometimes it might be indirect you might need to observe them but you need to learn as much as you can about them because they are the ones who you are designing for
1: Arwood thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights and advice with us today
2: yeah and
0: thanks me too this is it's such a big and interesting subject. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Gat and Kat. Thanks, Steve. It's been a pleasure being on. No, you're very welcome. This podcast has been produced by the Design in Innovation Network, which is sponsored and supported by Innovate UK. So if you want to find out more about what we do or want to meet and talk to interesting people, just sign up to the network. And we'll see you next time on Silent Designers.